word sovereign is an interesting word. It is a word that means absolute or supreme rule or authority. And the words that we're describing today are the words that are found in the Bible, the Word of God. And it is the sovereign word or the sovereign authority or the sovereign commands of someone who is reigning high upon his throne, who sits and who reigns and who rules. And by his very personhood, he has all of the authority and all of the power as the sovereign God to dictate and determine then how we live our lives. Now, the problem that we have with the Bible today is simply this. There's a group of people that do not adhere to, nor do they believe that this is the sovereign word of God that governs the family. They are people who, for whatever reason, have not yet come to faith in Christ, or maybe they have rejected Christ, have heard about him, and have decided that that is not an option for them. And so because of that, this Bible that we hold in our hands is not the sovereign word to them from God that governs their definition nor their practice of what a family constitutes and how it operates. And so it's not surprising to us that the Supreme Court then ruled the way that it did. For we no longer have the the illusion to believe that we live in a Christian nation. For we have long lost, I think, the heritage that we once thought we once enjoyed. It's been gone for quite some time. Many of us, if not most of us, are just now awakening to that reality. And so there are people that I'm sure you live next to or you recreate with or you live with that for whatever reason, this is not the word of God. It is not sovereign. It is not authoritative over their lives. And what you believe and how you practice to them, according to this Bible, is foolishness. It's nonsense. It's not applicable to them. They care nothing about it. And so because of that, they have chosen a lifestyle for many reasons that conflicts with what God says. And they see no problem with that, nor do they see a problem with a society that conflicts with what the Word of God says. And that's why there are many today who are happy about the ruling on the Supreme Court and many, many others that have preceded the ruling that we had, I think, on June the 27th in 2015. doesn't surprise us that a Supreme Court that ruled to legalize murder many years ago rendered the ruling that it gave in regard to same-sex marriage. It's not surprising to us. Why? Because it is secular court. And so they see that there, as the Supreme Court of the United States of America, has greater authority than the authority found in the Word of God because it is not the preface nor the foundation for which they rendered their ruling. Now, we, we understand that. And we can compartmentalize that. But the problem we have today is simply this. The problem today lies within the church. That's where the problem is. It's not with a secular society or with a culture that says, you know, the Bible is not the sovereign word that governs my family or the family of our society. But the problem now lies within the church. Where is the church going to stand on this ruling? And there are going to be many, I'm convinced, that because of the society and the culture that we have, for whatever reason, decided that we're more sovereign than God, have dictated and determined for us in regard to morality and how we're going to govern the family. Many in the pulpits today are going to be faced with, do I compromise on what I believe to be the sovereign word of God and stand on God's word, or do I go with the flow? Do I go with the simple majority? Because if I don't, I'm not going to be able to build large crowds. 
or what Jesus said and what God's word said is that eventually there will be pastors and preachers today who will preach in order to build crowds because people are no longer willing to endure sound doctrine and biblical teaching. We're in that era today. And so we need to understand that in the Christian church, there is this, this dichotomy, there is this difficulty, there is this hardship, especially with those who want to build large crowds. How do I take a stand on what the Supreme Court has done, and how do I do it in such a way that I don't offend anybody? I mean, after all, you've heard somebody say, well, you can't throw stones when you live in a glass house. You can't you know, talk about someone else's sin when you yourself are a sinner. So why are we picking on just one sin? Well, here's the difference. The difference is I'm not, I admit, well, let me, let me say that. Should I? I've been talking about my perfection for quite some time. I'm not trying to get anyone, or, nor are you, are we who are imperfect people, let me say you who are imperfect, you know, we who are imperfect people are trying to get anyone else to not only allow us to sin, to accept our sin, but to change their views so that our sin not only becomes tolerable, but acceptable, becomes a lifestyle that's agreeable with all. They're wanting us to change our view, could correspond with their view, so that in changing our view, we then not only allow them, not only affirm that, but we agree and participate as a church. And the church today is basically having a hard time with what the Bible says. And the reason for that is because there are some who don't see this as the sovereign word of God that governs the family. Not to the degree that, that God intended for it to be seen and to be studied and to be applied in order to shape our lives. There are some in the church today who say, well, you know what? It is the sovereign word of God as long as it speaks about the gospel or the words of Jesus. But outside of that, you know, culture has changed, times have changed, and so therefore it's not completely sovereign in all matters, just in certain selective matters so that we can then wiggle our way and find our way to be accommodating to a culture and a society that wants to deem something else as acceptable when God's word said it's not. And so there are many in the church today who would claim to be believers, claim to be Christian, claim to be believing in the gospel and followers of Jesus who would say homosexuality is an acceptable lifestyle today. You don't believe it? Let me read to you a quote from Jimmy Carter, a president of the, of, of the United States, former president of the United States of America, a Southern Baptist Sunday school teacher in his church. In an interview, President Carter was talking about the book that he wrote in his memoir, A Full Life, Reflections at 90. He was being interviewed by Mr. Hill, who writes for HuffPost on last Tuesday, when he asked if he believes that Jesus would approve of gay marriage, and Carter said that he does. Carter responded that Jesus would even would, would, even though he couldn't cite any verse in Scripture that would support that assertion. Listen to what he said. I quote, I believe that Jesus would approve gay marriage, but that's just not my personal opinion. But that's just my personal opinion. 
I think Jesus would encourage any love affair if it was honest and sincere and was not damaging to anyone else. And I don't see that gay marriage damages anyone. What ignorance. A long-standing Bible teacher, Sunday school teacher in a Southern Baptist church in Georgia, president of the United States, making assertions that the word of God is not the sovereign word that governs the family. And we wonder why there's a problem in the church today. Chances are you know someone that claims to be a believer. I do. I have a family member in my family that doesn't believe the way that I do in regard to the LGBT community and what they're trying to do. And we have sometimes some very heated discussions in regard to that. Sunday school teachers, deacons, Christians, pastors who would suggest that the word of God is not sovereign when it comes to governing the family. Well, what does God have to say about it? We read in the passage that Pastor Mike read, Jesus was questioned about divorce. And what did he say? Go back to the scriptures. Go back to the ancient words of God in the very beginning. Why? God ain't changed his mind. God has not evolved, Mr. President. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And what he said in Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 is what he says at the end of the book of Revelation. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And his sovereign words stand as true. Let's go to the Bible and see what it said in Genesis 1 beginning with verse 9. God's sovereign word, first of all, displays his power. God's sovereign word displays his power. In Genesis 1.1, Moses in recording how God shaped and framed and created the universe, he said, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Have you ever thought about when he began to record Genesis 1.1, he didn't seek to explain the existence of God. He simply said, God exists. And the reason for that is because he's writing to those who believe that God, in fact, does exist. Jehovah, Yahweh, God, the Lord, he exists. God exists. He's not trying to prove the existence of God. He believes that God exists and God does exist. But God not only exists, but God is all self-sufficient. He is self-sufficient in that he is pre-existent. No one created him, but also he is self-sufficient in the sense that he doesn't need anyone to act. God has all power and all authority and all wisdom to act as he desires to act. Now notice how God displays his power in his sovereign word. Verse 9, and God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Now if you take a look at how God displays his power, he simply in his word helps us understand the pattern of the power of his word. Notice the pattern throughout the whole sort of recording of in Genesis 1, the creation of God, God spoke, it was done, God saw it, and it was good. There's a pattern there. God spoke, it was done, he saw it, and it was good. Take a look at that and throughout the creation. God spoke, 
He voiced creation. He didn't have to wave his hands. He didn't have to stand up, sitting on his throne. He simply voiced it and creation as we know it, the universe as we enjoy it, was created by his simple voice, by speaking a single word, the power of God went forth and it was done, meaning that it happened, meaning that out of nothingness, all of a sudden, there was everything that we know in the universe. God spoke it. That's power in his word. He spoke and there was light. He spoke, and there was sky. He spoke, and there were animals. He's going to speak, and there's man. When God speaks, it happens. Why doesn't that happen today? God has spoken. Why doesn't it happen? Why isn't it so? God speaks, it is so, but notice in the text, he saw. You know, after God spoke and it was so, after God spoke and it happened, he, he evaluated, he analyzed, he inspected the application of his word. He spoke it, it was so, and then God examined his creation. He surveyed it. He inspected it. I went to the fruit stand the other day and fruit's out there. You've got to be careful. Some of it's a little riper than it should and it's on sale and there's a reason for that. But he went around and inspecting his creation, the application of his word. And God is going around, even today, inspecting, seeing, scrutinizing the power of his word going forth and the application of that word. Don't be mistaken, God still sees. God still inspects. God still examines the application of his word. You study today in Life Group, I hope you did, that well, that 35% of us study the Bible simply to read it, but we don't apply it, or something like that. God doesn't expect us just to read it and to study it and to know its content. He wants us to apply it, and God is going around examining, evaluating, assessing how we are applying what he has said, and when he inspects it, we hope that he, in his evaluation, says, it's good. You fulfilled my purpose. What? What has been done, or the application of my word, is pleasing to me. A couple of, couple of years ago, I don't know, but I told you about an illustration about Morse Chapman when he was with his grandkids. His son has a, a little game that he plays with his kids in order to get them to do what he wants them to do. He says, who got the power? And they say, daddy got the power. Daddy got the power. And one time his grandkids were in his home and dad was not there and he was trying to get his grandkids to do something. And he said, who's got the power? And they said, daddy's got the power. He said, no, 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 no. Poppy, our grandpa's got the power. Who's got the power in displaying his words? God does. When he speaks, it happens. And in the application of that, he inspects that application and he sits in judgment of the application of what he has instructed and what he has commanded. And if we don't follow suit in what he has commanded, we won't pass the test. And the ultimate purpose and aim that we have as Christians, as followers of Jesus, is to hear him say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You have run a good race. You have fought a good fight. You have finished the course. In other words, I am pleased. I have found your life to be one that applies what I have said, what I have commanded, and your life was good. 
So God's sovereign word displays his power. But God's sovereign word also decrees his image. Notice the text in Genesis 1, skipping down to verse 21, following the description of creation. For God is about to command now his greatest creation. He is about to command now his greatest creation. Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, then. I like that, then. Don't miss that word, then. After God created the universe and all that is in it and animals and sea and air and birds and all of that, it was after all of that, then. Then comes the grand finale. You know, when you're in a, when you're in a, uh, uh, oh, uh, no, when you're in a, not a, a concert, not a concert, uh, when you're in a symphony, or when, you're always waiting for the fat lady to get up and sing. Then you know the end is there, right? Opera. Yeah, sorry. Couldn't think of the word. Thank you. When you're in an opera, you're always waiting for the fat lady to sing. Because when you get up, you know it's the end. This is the end. Then. God is about now. Then God. Sovereign God sitting and reigning on his throne. God, the supreme authority, the sovereign Lord of Lords, now God, notice he speaks, he voices, he says, let us make man. Let us make who? Let us make man, meaning mankind. Let us make man, how? In our own image and in our likeness. God designed man to reflect and to represent his image and his likeness. I don't know about you, but as we get older, some of you can relate to this. How many, how many of you, when you look in the mirror or when you do something from time to time, you go, you know, that was just like my dad. You ever, you ever come on, can I get a witness to that? That's like my dad. And as appalling as that may seem to you, you reflect the image of your parents. Now, some of it is good and you're glad, and then some of it is not quite as good as the rest. I'm not going to say it's bad, it's just not as good, because I know my parents, especially my mom today, is watching the broadcast because she's still at home because of her hip. So, tell dad I'm being good, okay? So, you know, the other day I said, you know, that's just like my dad. And isn't it interesting that we begin, as we grow older, to do things and to say things and, and, and to see ourselves, our parents being reflected in what we say and what we do. Now, the bad thing is when you look in the mirror and you see your dad. Okay? And that's not too bad, Mom, so it's okay. But anyway, to reflect the image of your father. Did you know that the divine design that God had for man was to reflect the image of God the Father. What does that mean to be made in his image and his likeness? Simply, I, I like simple things. It means that we're to be similar to God. To be similar to him. Now, we're not going to get into what all that means. That's a whole other study for a whole other time. But we are to be made similar to him. Here's, here's what I'm going I'm to suggest. Now, hold on to this. Here it is. Here's the point I really want to make. When we distort the image of man, we pervert the image of God. That's why homosexuality is such a heinous sin, if not greater or as great as abortion. 
That's what Satan did in the garden. He tempted God's perfect creation who reflected the image and the likeness of his creator. He was perfect in a perfect garden who never knew sin. And when he tempted Adam in that garden, he destroyed the perfection of God, meaning the image of God, because now man in that distortion no longer reflected the image of God. We were originally created to reflect the image and the likeness of God. But because of sin, that was distorted now. And now we're born sinners. But Christ came to display the likeness of God in perfection and in every way and in that likeness he died on a cross for sins that he did not commit so that you and I through faith in that redemptive work on the cross can now be restored through his redemptive work through the Holy Spirit into the likeness of God and that likeness can only be restored through faith in Jesus that's That's the incredible thing what Jesus came to do is to restore us back to the original design and the intent that God had when he placed Adam and Eve in the garden to reflect his image and his likeness. For God said in Romans 8, 12, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of son in order that he might be the firstborn. Notice what are we predestined to do? To be conformed into the likeness of his son. Through Christ, we are daily being conformed into the likeness of his son. We are to be moving daily through maturity and progression to look more like him and less like us. 1 Corinthians 3.18, and we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, notice it says, are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory. We are being transformed into his likeness day by day. He's removing and he's adding things into our lives and removing things from our lives so that we can reflect the image of God. When is that work complete? Philippians 1, 6 says, he says, I am sure that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it when? On the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. When are you going to be made perfect? In his likeness and his image? When you die. And Christ returns. So from now until then, if you're a Christian, if you're in Christ... You're a piece of work in every sense of that word. So turn to your neighbor and say, you're a piece of work, all right. Well, look him back in the eye and say, well, you're not as progressing as much as you should. You know, in order for us to reflect the image and the likeness of God, we've got to understand who God is. And if your understanding and your knowledge of who God is is distorted in any way, the way you reflect that image is also going to be distorted. And so it behooves us, and it's important for us to understand who God is in his character and his nature and his likeness and his perfection. So that as we move daily in progression as Christians, as Christ followers of the church, so that we might reflect that. And we must respect the image of God. That's why sin is so horrible. It distorts the image of God in us. And it perverts the image of God. 
And that is the greatest attack, I think, from the LGBT demonic influence is that it is perverting the image of God by distorting the image of man. And that, what, that is what makes it a great sin. For God himself is being redefined by the distortion of how we're defining man. And in defining man, we're redefining God rather than God defining man. It's not us who define him, it's him who defines us, and we are to reflect his image. He is not to reflect ours. And he is the standard by which we look to and we move toward, not the other way around. And Satan has had a heyday in the last decade, if not hundreds of years, from the very foundation of, of, of I think, of, of Genesis 3, he's been slowly trying to move us away from the image of God. In the original creation. Number three, God's sovereign word only displays his power, decrees his image, but thirdly, it determines our gender. God's sovereign word determines our gender. Notice Genesis 1:27, the last part of the verse. I'll read the first part first. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. He created man, Adam, in his own image. But notice, he created him male and female. He created them. He created them male and female. Now, I don't know about you, but the word male is masculine. And the word female is feminine. Male is masculine and female is feminine. God created one man and one woman. Adam and Eve. He didn't create Adam and Steve or Angela and Eve He created Adam and Eve, a male and a female. He created them. How did he create them? Genesis 2, 7. Then the Lord formed man, how? Out of dust from the ground. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. God got a hold of some dust, began to mold and to shape it. Maybe like Jesus when he put a little spit, you know, on the mud and put it on her eye, and he began to form and shape man. And then after he got through, he, he breathed, left, breathed life, breathed breath into Adam, and he became a living person. That's why when the curse, he said, Adam, you were made out of dust, and to dust you will return. How did he create Eve? I think he created Eve at the same time as he did man, or pretty close, in Genesis 2.21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon a man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up the place with flesh. God was a surgeon. Did you know that? And the rib, any of you having ribs for dinner, just think a lunch today, think about this. And the rib that the Lord had taken from the man he made into a woman. Caused the man to go asleep. Surgically removed a a rib, put it back together, took the rib, formed another living being, and she was a woman. It was a woman. Now, I'm a father of three children. Patty and I have been married almost 40 years, coming close. We're a few years away from that. We have three children. I have eight grandchildren under nine. I have seven grandchildren under seven. So I'm not really that old. When our children were born and our grandchildren were born, when you ask about the birth, what's the first thing you want to hear? 
when they're born. Now, remember, when, when my, my children were born, it was like pre all of these, this stuff that determines stuff. So when they were born, it's a boy. It's a girl. How did the doctor know that? Don't answer that. How did he know that? Because God created man different than he did woman. God created male and female. On birth certificates right now, when they're born, there is a, an M for male and a place for female. Why? You are known by your gender. When a, someone is born today, they're not going to put gender to be predetermined at a later date by the individual being born or by the culture they live in. That's, a, that's crazy. Who created them? God. How did he create them? Male and female. Well, what about people who, you know, well, I'm really a female, you know, in bondage in a male body. That's depravity. That's sin. That's your fallen nature. That's not God. God determines our gender when we're created in the womb. And that gender is not to be predetermined at a later date by a society or the individual. I, I read just the other day, there's a six-year-old, a six-year-old where the mother took her to kindergarten and tried to enroll her in school as a boy. And she's upset because her birth certificate says female, but she claims her six-year-old says she's a boy. I ask you, how does a six-year-old know she's a boy? We live in a culture that doesn't understand that it's God's sovereign word that determines one's gender. Number four, God's sovereign word directs our purpose. Notice in verse 28, Genesis 1, and God blessed them. You know, he made male and female, and he blessed them. Aren't you glad God blessed the differences? Get amen? Now guys, do you, do you thank God for women? Women, do you thank God for men? Okay, most of the time. Viva la diferencia. I know sometimes between the genders there's a little bit of, you know. But we're like, we're like those bugs at night, you know, that are attracted to the light on your car. They don't know why, but they're attracted to it. If they only understood when they hit your car, they would die. They might not be so attracted to it. We're attracted to one another. That's a good thing, and God blessed that attraction. Notice, and God said, notice the command. God said, again, it's a command. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. He consecrated, he consented, he blessed the relationship, and then he commanded them to consummate colonize and conquer the earth. Now, I'm going to take the time to deal with only one of those because of time. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. How can you do that if they're both male? How can you do that if they're both female? If God had made Adam and Steve, our race would have stopped. 
If God had made two women instead of a man and a woman, we would have ceased to exist. May I tell you that I believe it is unnatural because God made male and he made female for the purpose of reproduction. And he wants us to reproduce. He orders us to do that. Well, if I can't, you know, it, it, I'll, I'll adopt. How do you adopt it without a man and a woman? There can't be any babies. It's unnatural. The purpose of being male and female is to reproduce and to fill the planet with other human beings. And God wants us to multiply and to be fruitful. To colonize the earth that he's given us with human beings. That's the purpose of being male and female. And God's sovereign word dictates and determines that. But God's sovereign word defines, lastly, our relationships. He defines our relationship. And this is the relationship of marriage. There is a Supreme Court, but it's not in D.C. It's in heaven. And he defines human relationships, especially the relationship of marriage. Genesis 2 Verse 18, notice the purpose of marriage. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. It was shortly after Adam was in the garden and he was naming the animals. Mr. Horse and Mrs. Horse. Mr. Pig and Mrs. Pig. Mr. Duck and Mrs. Duck. Wait a minute. Where's my missus? I'm alone. I'm the only one of my creation, the only one of my species. Everybody else has a mate. Where is mine? What's the purpose of marriage? Companionship. Companionship. He doesn't and didn't want Adam to be alone. He doesn't want anyone to be alone as long as it's in the framework of proper marriage. Well, how could you deny people to have same-sex marriages because they're alone? You ever heard that argument? As long as it doesn't hurt anybody, according to Jimmy Carter, it should be okay. It's not the way God designed it. Man was alone. He made a woman, not another man. Companionship, number 22, verse 22, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and notice he brought her to the man. Notice the preparation of marriage. He made Eve out of man. He made Eve just for Adam. He made Adam for Eve and Eve for Adam. It wasn't an afterthought. And it's interesting how God puts two people together. For God has made someone specifically for you, and he has made you specifically for someone else. I believe in a divine creator who does just that. When he gives you life, he gives someone else life that he's designed just specifically for you. We began praying for our spouse's children when they were kids. That God, you would prepare the mate that our child 
would marry. And we believe that the people that God put our children with are mates that God had prepared for them. There's a preparation, but notice the people in marriage. Again, I'm going to hammer this one more time. Verse 23. Then the man said, this is at last the bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. God presented her to Adam. The first thing out of another, woman. And like Forrest Gump said, that's all I'm going to say about that. Man and woman. One man or one woman. Not polygamy either. It's coming. One man, one woman. That's what constitutes a marriage. One man, one woman. Notice the pattern of marriage. Verse 24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Notice the exclusivity in marriage. Leave your mom and daddy and cleave to your spouse. If some of you need to hear this. You need to cut the, cut the strings that keep you connected. Don't keep running to mom and daddy all the time and all that. You need to be independent. It's an exclusive relationship. You break away from them and you form your own family. Notice the unity. You become one. One. One man, one woman, becoming two people, becoming one. One flesh. That's why there's such holiness and sacredness in the relationship of marriage. One man, one woman becoming one person. Notice not just the unity, but the intimacy. The man and his wife are both naked, and they were not ashamed. Notice the intimacy, but notice the innocence. Notice the innocence. How much intimacy is there in a relationship? I'm going to close with this. He ordered one hamburger, one order French fries, and one drink. The old man unwrapped the plain hamburger and carefully cut it in half. He placed one half in front of his wife and then carefully counted out the fries, dividing them into two piles and neatly placed one pile in front of his wife. She took a sip of the drink, his wife took a sip, and then they then set the cup down between them. As he began to eat his few bites of hamburger, the people around them kept looking over and whispering to one another. You could tell they were thinking, that poor elderly couple, all they can afford is one meal for the two of them. As the man began to eat his fries, a young man came to the table. He politely offered to buy another meal for the old couple, but the older man said they were just fine. They were used to sharing everything. The surrounding people noticed the little old lady hadn't eaten a bite. She sat there watching her husband eat and occasionally taking turns sipping the drink. Again, the young man came over and begged them to let him buy a meal for them. This time, the old woman said, no, thank you. We are used to sharing everything. As the old man finished 
He was wiping his face neatly with a napkin. The young man again came over to the little old lady who had not yet eaten a single bite of food and asked, what is it that you're waiting for? She paused for a moment and then answered, the teeth. The teeth. You don't get it? The teeth, the false teeth. The false teeth. They shared everything. I got to spell it out for these people, and I tell you what. The teeth. Now you get it. If I didn't explain it to you, you're going, what do you mean by teeth? No, the teeth. T-E-E-T-H. The teeth. Intimacy, unity, that is gross, <laughs> in a marriage is between a man and a woman. So what's my response toward God's sovereign word that governs the family? What's my response? As a Christian, you need to ask yourself that question. Is his word sovereign? Is it authoritative? I didn't ask you if society accepted it or not, or if your friends believed it or not. But as a Christ follower, as a believer of Jesus, this Bible contains the gospel that brought you to faith in, in Christ. What does it say? I think some of us sometimes are like that pastor who went to visit his elderly member, and he had been a pastor of this, this guy for, for about 12 years now. And this elderly member had sat under his preaching for 12 years, and, and he went to his bedside, and as he was dying there, lying on his deathbed, he, he thought, well, let me try to console my, my brother in Christ with something from the Word. And he picked up the man's Bible as he saw it there and opened it and noticed that it was kind of thin, thought maybe it was the New Testament. As he opened it, he realized that there were parts of the Old Testament and parts of the New Testament, there was large sections of it missing, and he turned to his brother and he said, you know, I wanted to console you with the scripture, but I noticed there's large sections of your Bible that are missing. He said, oh, pastor, he said, I sounded your preaching for the last 12 years. Oh, yes, that's right, brother. And every time you told me that wasn't a part of the word of God, I yanked it out of my Bible, and that's all that I have left. How much of this is the sovereign word of God? Really? From Genesis 1-1 to the end of the maps? Jesus said, you want to know what God said? Go back to the beginning. God hasn't changed, church. God has not changed culture. God has not changed United States of America. God has not changed President Jimmy Carter and President Obama. God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and his word never changes. It's we who have changed. Don't blame our culture. It's pagan. Blame the church. And that's us. And the church needs to wake up, needs to repent, needs to rise up and raise up the standard of God and be bold. If you're an unbeliever today, you don't accept what's here, I understand. And the only way you will is to receive Christ as your Savior and Lord. Because once you place your faith and trust in Him, 
what is written in here will no longer be foolish. It'll be wise. So if you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus, don't judge us by our morality. Judge us by our master, our savior, and his name is Jesus, who believed in all of God's word. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believeth in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Let's pray. This morning we get to continue in worship, giving praise and honor to our Lord and Savior because of the tremendous work that he has done in these lives. We've got three coming to give their testimony this morning. First is my friend Colton. If you're part of Colton's family, have taught him in life group or are with him in life group, would you stand? Have you asked Jesus to come into your heart and to be your savior and your boss? And is it what you want to do, follow him? Yes. Because of that decision, it's my privilege to get to baptize you this morning in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We're buried with Christ in baptism, and we're raised to walk in newness of life. This is Sadie, and are you Colton's brother? If you're here as part of her family and her life group, would you just remain standing? Sadie, have you asked Jesus to come into your heart to be your savior and your boss, and do you want to serve him your whole life? Because of that decision, it's my privilege to get to baptize you this morning in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Buried with Christ in baptism, and raised to walk in the of life. This is Darla, and if you're part of Darla's family uh, and you're here today to celebrate with her, would you stand? 
Darling, have you asked Jesus Christ to come into your heart to be your Savior and your boss? And is it your desire to follow Him the rest of your life? Because of that decision, it's my privilege this morning to baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Buried with Christ in baptism and grace to walk in newness of life.